Our text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 129. Psalm 129. And while you're turning there, I want to just make a quick note about the title of this psalm. We read, A Song of Ascents, as in Ascending. And this is actually a title that is shared by several psalms in this whole section of the Psalter, from Psalm 120 to 134. But what does it mean, the Song of Ascents? The common understanding is that this title refers to the Jewish custom of singing from this portion of the Psalter as they ascended or mounted up into the city of Jerusalem for their annual feasts. So that's, that's the idea, a song of ascents. I'll be reading this psalm in its entirety. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let us pray together. Oh, blessed Lord God, we do seek you. We do ask that you be with us, that you may give us that gift of illumination of our minds and our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, as I pray that I may pour myself out, we pray, O oh Lord, that your holy word would be pressed down into our hearts and our minds, that we may be built up and encouraged by this word from the scripture tonight. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, indeed, may Israel proclaim it. And note the repetition here. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. This psalm opens rather abruptly. It's as if the psalmist is caught in the middle of some deep thought or meditation. Or perhaps he speaks out to us from a feeling of agitation. Greatly, or many times, have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, but is this literally in respect to Israel, that is, Jacob, as he was persecuted by his elder brother Esau? Or rather, should we consider the name here Israel 
in a more collective sense. For the same time that the psalmist speaks as an individual, greatly have they afflicted me, he also speaks as a body of people. Let Israel now say. So what is meant here more specifically by the name Israel? Well, we have a parallel expression in verse 5 where Israel is called Zion. This is a covenant name of God's people. God's covenant people. That is what is being spoken of here by this word Israel. And I think fairly enough, by way of extension, the church of Jesus Christ. Now we also read, even from my youth. And so if we're taking Israel in a collective sense, and not as the individual Jacob, uh, what does that mean? Well, as Scripture interprets Scripture, we see in the book of Hosea in chapter 2 where it speaks about the youth of Israel. We read there in chapter 2, verse 15, She, that is Israel, shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So evidently, in our psalm, it's speaking about that time that, that we commonly refer to as the Exodus, when God's people were called out of uh, Egypt and delivered from their bondage of slavery there, that that, in a sense, are the days of the youth of Israel. But having given a little something of the context, we must ask ourselves, what is the psalmist's main point here? What is the main point? I believe this is the point. Even though Israel has often been persecuted, even from his childhood, so to speak, yet nonetheless they, that is the enemies of God's people, have not prevailed against me. That, I tell you, is the voice of God's people. They, the wicked, the enemies against God's church and his holy ones, the saints, they have not prevailed against me. Now, we don't often have the summary of an entire psalm in just its opening verses, but I believe these words express the import of the entire psalm. They have not prevailed against me. And we see the same message in the Gospels, don't we? For example, we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall what? Shall not prevail against it. The wicked should not prevail over God's covenant people the church of Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that God's people will not be persecuted even in our own generation. In fact, I think we could well argue that in our day, antagonism against the church has increased. It's been on the rise. I think it was very interesting. Recently, I heard <coughs> a Jewish speaker on the radio and he asked his audience, who do you think is the most hated group in America today? And he goes on to ask, for which group is it 
politically correct to hate. This is a Jewish speaker. But his answer was not the Jews. He said it was Christians. Those are the ones in our current culture, in our, in our milieu of our day, who are most hated. And so, just as an illustration, I want to take a look at a few current events. And for greater relevance, I'll limit these examples to our Western world. Just about a year ago, the Finnish evangelical Lutheran minister, Johanna Pohjola, was placed on trial for the hate crime of authorizing the publication of a pamphlet which presented the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality. Reverend Pohjola was fined and acquitted in March, but the prosecution said that they might appeal to the appellate court. And last summer in Canada, at least 20 churches were either vandalized or burned down to the ground. A week later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau commented on this anti-church crime wave and simply said, <clears throat> and I quote, that's not the way to go. And the Canadian pastor, Arthur Pulowski, he spoke at an outdoor prayer service, actually in Portland, Oregon. So now we're speaking about America, not Canada. But this church service was disrupted by members of Antifa who proceeded to spray mace in the face of Pastor Pulaski. And during this attack, one of the members of Antifa actually cried out to the Christian group saying, where is your God? <laughs> Where is your God now? It was as if they were quoting directly from the Psalms, as we just saw. Psalm 115, why should the nations or the heathens say, where is their God? Psalm 42, as with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? What is more, the Antifa members threw flash bombs into the midst of these gathering Christians who gathered for prayer, and this included young children. According to one eyewitness, a flash bomb was thrown into a group of children who ranged in age from four months to ten years old. And reportedly, the police did little to protect these Christians from the violent members of Antifa. My brothers and sisters, we are currently witnessing a kind of persecution against the church in North America such as never been seen before. And this is taking place not only in Finland and in Canada, but as we said also in America, the home of the free and the brave. Now the scriptures always tell us the way things are. And also, the Lord has given us in his word, words to comfort and to encourage us. Listen again to our text from Psalm 129, when the psalmist says that the wicked have not prevailed against me. And listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as we read them from John 16, verse 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation." See, there's no question about that as Christians. In the world, you will have tribulation. But then he goes on to say, 
but take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart, my brothers and sisters, and be encouraged from the Word of God this evening. Are you or someone dear to you suffering for the sake of Christ? Then be assured and comforted. For the Word of God is teaching us here that the church of Jesus Christ will be delivered from her enemies. And you will see the Lord in His righteousness avenging our and His foes. I want you to remember that. <clears throat> but look for, with me for a moment <clears throat> at the structure of this little psalm. Psalm 129. The first part of the psalm is about the way that God's covenant people are afflicted. And the second part is about the way of the Lord's vengeance against those who persecute the church. So these two parts I'd like to use to serve as two heads for our sermon this evening. And right in the middle of the psalm is a clear point of transition between these two parts. As we read in verse 4, the Lord or Jehovah is righteous. And what I actually want to do this evening is first talk about the judgments of the Lord in the second part of the psalm, and then to consider the suffering and the affliction of his people in the first part. So I'm actually going to reverse the order in the psalm. We'll look at the second part first and the first part secondly. So please follow along with me in your Bibles, beginning at the fourth verse to the end of the psalm. We read in the second part of verse 4, he has cut the cords of the wicked. And actually, I'm going to defer this text as well, because I want to show you how I believe it's connected to the third verse, the verse that immediately precedes it. But in verse 5, we read, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. The idea here is that the wicked, that as the wicked, retreat and defeat from the church of Jesus Christ, they will be confused, they will be ashamed, and they will be disappointed. Like Haman of old, as we read in the book of Esther, their desire against the righteous will not be satisfied. And then we come to one of the colorful metaphors uh, that we find in the psalm in verses 6 through 8. We read about what we may think of as a harvest of the wicked, so to speak. In verse 6, we read that the wicked are like the grass on the housetops. And the grass is presented in a fashion as if it was a crop to harvest. Now we see the same metaphor used in other parts of the scripture. For example, in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 27. I'm not going to go to these places now, but if you want to make a note of it. Isaiah chapter 37 verse 27 and 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 26. And we read there in those places about the inhabitants of the fortified cities, how they shall become, quote, as the grass on the housetops which is scorched before it is grown up. Now, the houses in Judea typically had flat roofs, 
and they were often covered with dirt where the grass could easily grow and for a short time flourish. But since the soil was shallow, the green grass would wither and then be scorched by the heat of the sun. Does this remind you of the Lord's parable of the four soils? In speaking about the second kind of soil where the seed fell, we read, and I quote, They did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. My brothers and sisters, in our psalm, this is a picture that the Lord is giving to us of those who persecute us as the church of Christ. And although the enemies of Christ and his church may appear at first to be vigorous and flourishing, yet in due time they will be weakened and shrivel up. And though the persecution may be of the cruelest kind, it will not last long like the withering grass on top of a flat roof. Then we read in verse 7, speaking of the grass, that the reaper does not fill his hands, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, or literally his bosom. This, my friends, is a picture of absurdity. Imagine harvesting withered grass like a crop from a flat rooftop. There will not be enough to fill the reaper's hand. And imagine the binder's arms filled with sheaves of just a few blades of withered grass. That's the picture here. What does that mean for us? It means that under the blistering heat of the Lord's righteous judgment, the persecutors of the church will shrink in number and become powerless. And instead of realizing their wicked designs, all their labor will prove futile. My brothers and sisters, be encouraged by the word of the Lord here. Those who hate the church of Jesus Christ will not prevail against her. That means even you and me, if we are in Christ. The psalm closes in verse 8 with another picture related to the harvest. We read, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now this was a custom to bless harvesters in their labor. In fact, we actually see this or something like it in the book of Ruth in the second chapter. We read there, And he that is Boaz said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. But what exactly do we see in our text here in Psalm 129? We don't see simply the blessing being given. What do we see? It says, Nor do those who pass by, and so on. Do you see? In other words, the passerbys do not call out to the reapers in the field, and pronounce this blessing to them in their labor. Nor, nor do those who pass by say, 
No one would pronounce a blessing on the works of the wicked. No one. Not even a passerby, so to speak. And my brothers and sisters, I also want to point out to you the language that we have here in this psalm. What does this sound like? When in verse 5 it says, May all who hate Zion be, and so on. And in verse 6 we read, Let them be like. What kind of expressions are these? These are, are petitions. These are prayers. O Lord, may all who hate Zion be. Let them be like, and so on. These are petitions that the church is offering up to the Lord. So I tell you that this scripture also tells us here in this place that it is proper for us to pray against the enemies of the church. Yes, it's certainly true that we should first pray for their conversion. Maybe among them there's someone like the Saul of, Saul of Tarsus, that one time great persecutor of the church, but who later became the Apostle Paul. Yet if they will not repent, we should pray that the Lord would bring down his righteous judgment upon them. As Christ, the mediator, the medi as he exercises mediatorial dominion over all the nations, we should pray that the Lord would bring down the wicked who are in charge over us, who govern over us. We read along the same lines in Second Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And remember the words of our text. From the very opening, it's speaking about those who are afflicted. The saints of God who are afflicted. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. <clears throat> And so we come now to our second heading, that part of our psalm, which gives specificity to our affliction. And we find here another metaphor in the psalm, another metaphor. And perhaps this one is even more vivid and colorful than the last one we just considered. We read in the third verse, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. We read also in Isaiah 51, verse 23, where the same metaphor is being used. The tormentors, tormentors say, lie down that we may cross over. Put down your back as the ground and like the street for those who walk on it. Now, this metaphor is intentionally graphic. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The words seem almost poetical, don't they? And I think we should not shy away from the imagery. Initially, we may think of these words in a literal sense as we consider them. As if a man may lie flat on the ground, like we just read in Isaiah, lie down, so that we can cross over, put down your back as the ground, and then a tormentor with a team of oxen 
and his plow plows across your back. Now, of course, this is figurative language. Yet the metaphor is rich, and its imagery is inseparably tied to the meaning here. But what should be our interpretation of this metaphor? The farmer, when he plows, is merciless with the soil, right? The farmer in his plowing, he has no sympathy for the earth as he cuts and tears and digs it up. When he sees a clod of dirt, he breaks it up. Or if he runs into a stone, he removes it from the field. Or if it's too big, he, he plows around the stone. But he is determined to be thorough and to finish his job well. And so his plow, it digs deep, deep into the soil so that he may later sow his seed with confidence. My friends, the word of God here is telling you and me about a picture of persecution. How cruel and thorough are the wicked in tormenting the saints. They persecute the church with all of their strength, with all of their cunning. And what's more, they take great delights in doing so. Oh, how the wicked hate Zion. They hate you and me if we profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their hatred is not only evil, it's, it's irrational. And it's not only irrational, it's unnatural. How they love to tear up the soil of our earthy backs. Do you remember as we read in the opening chapters of Genesis, and we read about how God first made man, we read that the Lord shaped his body from the dust of the earth. Then he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he became a living creature. So you see, in a certain sense, we do have earthy backs because they were made from the dust of the earth. What does this teach us? It teaches us that man was created indeed as a glorious creature, like, like no other creature that he made. We are made in God's own divine image. And yet at the same time, we are but vessels of clay made from the dust of the earth. And while our tormentors run their plows across our backs, we must learn our frailty. We must learn the lowliness of our condition as sinners. We must pray to the Lord that he would use the persecution in our lives to humble us. For we must remember that our backs are made nearly from the dust of the earth. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, that from the dust we were made, and to the dust we shall return. 
We come now to that part of the psalm that I promised to address in verse 4. We read there, He has cut the cords of the wicked. In the Hebrew, the words may be rendered as to hack in pieces or to cut in two or simply as we have it here, to cut. But what exactly do the cords refer to? Now we may first think of the the well-known words from the second psalm. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Yet in my studies, I consulted various commentators. I think it may be more natural to see this expression within the immediate context of the psalm. That is, when we read that the plowers plow upon our backs and that the Lord cuts the cords, we see that he is cutting the reins which tie the plow to the oxen. And so now you see the plowers are no longer able to plow upon our backs. For he, that is the righteous Lord Jehovah, has cut the cords of the wicked. But let's turn again to the metaphor in verse 3. Now, in the second part of it, they made long their furrows. As we said, how deep and long are these furrows? Yet though our enemies mean it for evil, hear how we may use these furrows of our affliction for good. As the Puritan John Trapp puts it, God's people, as he comments at this place, God's people do sow the seed of prayer in the long furrows which those plowers made on their backs. Isn't that wonderful? In the midst of our affliction, we should be turning to the Lord in prayer. And so to speak, we'll plant our own seeds in those furrows that the wicked made on our backs, and we're going to plant seeds of prayer into those furrows, into the midst of our affliction. And in a similar way, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry suggests at this place, these furrows are used by the Lord, so we may use them to plant the seeds of prayer. But Henry here is saying they're also used by the Lord so that he may sow the seeds of his grace. Haven't you found in your own experience, brothers and sisters, that often when we're going through a time of great difficulty and hardship and affliction, (laughs) almost in an inexplicable way, we have a sense of an increase of grace of Christ in our lives. That is how the Lord can use our affliction. And I would like you to think about this, something more to consider. This imagery of these long and deep furrows may allude in particular to the stripes on the back which results from whipping. These deep and long furrows, like with the striking of a whip, they leave those red stripes on our backs. And so I tell you, in this way, the metaphor may remind us of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. We read in the Gospels, in Matthew 27, that when he, that is, when Pilate scourged Jesus, 
he delivered him to be crucified. And in John chapter 19, we read, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, the whips which the Romans used, typically at the end of the leather cords, they would tie fragments of bone. So when they whipped their victim, not only would it leave red stripes, but also those little pieces of bone would actually tear up the flesh of the back as, they're being, as, the, as the man is being whipped. And Jesus was scourged in this way. And so like the plowers tearing up the soil of our backs, such was the suffering of our Lord. Indeed, the scourging of Christ was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 50, we read, I gave my back to those who struck me. And in the whipping of Christ, we actually find the gospel itself. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you see? As the Lord Jesus suffered these things, he was suffering for his people. He was, he was being punished in our place for the things that our sins de deserved. Our sins, so to speak, were imputed to Christ so that by his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the Lord, his righteousness could be imputed to us. Do we see Jesus in this psalm, Psalm 129? As I said from the outset, the text presents the speaker as an individual, yet at the same time, he identifies himself collectively as Israel and Zion. So here we have one body of people, yet they are identified in, as one person. Does that sound familiar? The church is the body of Christ made up of many members, many people, but with one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus identifies himself with his people. We are the body of Christ. That's what the scripture teaches us. Speaking again of, of Saul of Tarsus, do you remember when the Lord Jesus confronted him on the road uh, as he was on his way to, to the next city to persecute more Christians? What, what did the Lord Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Does he say, why are you persecuting the church? No, he didn't say that. Did he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, he didn't say that. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Saul go up into the heavenlies and like beat on the Lord Jesus? No, Jesus is identifying with his people. As, as Saul was persecuting his people, Jesus identifying with his people is saying, why are you persecuting me? We are members of Christ's body. Now, 
we don't know what affliction may come to us personally in our lives. The scripture doesn't speak with that kind of specificity. And when you are in the midst of suffering, it may seem interminable. And indeed, our suffering may extend over a large part of our lives. And it may be that the Lord will call us to lay down our lives for him. Are you, am I, willing to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he leads us? Remember his words. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. I would like to give you an illustration from church history. Like the Finnish and Canadian ministers we spoke of, the French Protestant Marie Durand, or as we might say in English, Marie Durand, was afflicted for her faith. And though she did not die in prison like so many other Huguenots, she was locked up for 38 years. Remarkably, after she was released from prison, she still lived for another eight years. But Marie de Grand led a hard life. Whatever we may suffer for our Lord in this life, it will likely not compare to what she endured. In the year 1730, at the age of 19, Marie was arrested by the authority of a letter stamped with the king's seal. She was a newlywed. And as she and her husband, Mathieu Serre, were settling into their new home, the dragoons, that is the king's soldiers, broke in. Only two years earlier, her father, Etienne Ducran, at the age of 72, was arrested and imprisoned at a fort in Brescou. In a letter to his daughter, Marie, Etienne wrote, The more I suffer, the more I reflect on God. Doesn't that remind you of what we were just saying earlier about how the seeds of grace, the Lord, how he plants them into those long and deep furrows of our suffering. After their arrest, the newlyweds, Marie and Matthew, would never see each other again in this life. And Marie's husband was sent to the same prison where her father, Etienne, was incarcerated. And Marie was sent to a prison for Huguenot women called La Tour de Constance or the Tower of Constance. <coughs> but what was their crime? What was their crime? Why was Marie, her husband, and her father all imprisoned? Well, you see, Marie had a brother, Pierre Duchamp, who was a Huguenot pastor. He preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to thousands. That was their crime. They were members of the family of this outlaw preacher. And the king's men could not find the Huguenot pastor, who quite understandably was always on the run. So in cruel retribution, they persecuted all of his family. Two years after Marie's arrest, the king's men finally caught up with her brother. 
he was arrested, condemned, and hung on the gallows. And though they finally got their man, his loved ones were not released from prison. After her brother's death, Marie remained at the Tower of Constance for another 36 years. One well-known artifact from Marie's time at the Tower of Constance is a word carved in one of the stones at the rim surrounding of the circular opening of the prison floor. There was this opening in the, in the center of the floor and there were stones all around the opening. And in one of those stones, there's this etching, this, this carving in the stone using an old French word, resiste, which means resist, resist. And you could still see this word etched in that stone today. When my family and I were in France, we visited this site and we saw it ourselves. And though this word resist was engraved by a weak hand, it was written on a durable stone. Resist. Our faith is like that, isn't it? Even if Christ's enemies kill our frail bodies, they cannot extinguish the enduring faith of the church triumphant. Marie de Grand suffered for most of her life for the sake of her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Yet in the end, they did not take her life. And as a member of the body of Christ, she was victorious over her enemies. So we learn from this little psalm, Psalm 129, that no matter how much we may suffer for Christ, and no matter how severely we are persecuted, in the end, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail, and the wicked shall not. We also learn from this little psalm that because Jehovah is righteous, he will execute justice on all of his and our enemies. So let's comfort one another with these words from the Word of God that we're looking at this evening. Because in these words we find a hope, a certain hope. Yet they have not prevailed against me. This is the voice of the church. This is the voice of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for that blessed salvation which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is willing to suffer so much for the sake of his people. We praise you, O oh Lord, what a blessed salvation there is in him. And though at times we are overwhelmed, even as we read earlier from the 73rd Psalm with but the prosperity of the wicked, yet we know that their end will come suddenly. And we know, O oh Lord, that we must place our desire in you, that we should desire you more than anything else. May that be our prayer tonight as we pray in the hope, O oh Lord, that the church of Jesus Christ will prevail throughout all the ages 
of this world. But even even so, the church is really at the center and the focus of all of history. And we see the Lord blessing her throughout all of her days from her youth until that last day. Here's now, O Lord, we pray that you would be with us in the remainder of the service and this evening on this Christian Sabbath day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.